before we uh, get into the sermon today, I, I feel like I want to tell you a little bit of why we're doing this sermon series. Um, and it's not just because I think there's great truths in 1 Corinthians, but it's because I want us to help experience sort of digging through a whole book of the Bible. And the reason I say that, we live in a culture today where everything tends to get reduced to a tweet. And I don't mean that literally, but just a short bite of information. And, and obviously that's real convenient. And we love to take in short bites of information and we're busy and we can go on and do whatever the next thing is we're busy doing. But there is another truth that goes along with that. And the wonderful thing about God's Word is it is full of truths that can be simplified, can be explained to small children, can be caught in a moment. And that's great, and that's part of why God's Word is what it is. But there's another part of God's Word, and that is it's like this uh, mine that there's diamonds buried in there. But you've got to dig around in there, and you've got to hunt for them. And even when you find a diamond, it doesn't look real beautiful. It's got to be polished and cut and all of that. Well, there's truths in God's Word that aren't reducible to just real little quick things where we need to sort of dig around in there. And Paul is a prime example of it. Um, Paul loves to write the most complex sentences you've ever seen. And we're going to see today, it's like Paul is talking about one thing, and then that makes him think about, well, you know, if that's true, and then he goes to another thing, and a third thing, and then he comes back to the first thing that got him onto that. And there's a challenge in that. But what I want to show you is that if we take that challenge and, and take some time to dig around, we end up walking away with some wonderful gems of truth from God's Word. And my hope is not just to help us dig into 1 Corinthians and understand that book, but to learn some ways in the process that we can apply to any book, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and how to dig around in there. So today, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians some more. But to do that, I want to ask you a question. How do you choose the leader you choose to follow? What do you look for? What is it in that leader that makes you say, I, I want to follow that one? Uh, we're ramping up to a new political season. We're all excited about that and looking forward to that. But the reality is we're going to make choices about which leader we want to back, uh, choose. And it's not just in politics. Um, we have that in workplaces, in circles of friends, on a team, you name it. We sort of end up saying, I, I, I think I want to listen to that guy. Or she seems to always say smart things. I want, to, I want to hear what she has to say. How is it you choose your leaders it's not just an arbitrary question. Actually, it's a pretty important question because the leadership you choose can be a very divisive issue. We certainly see that in politics today. You know, it, which leader you choose has all kinds of repercussions with it. And oh, I better not mention that on Facebook because then I'm going to be, you know, and, and all of this. And what leader you choose is, can be pretty divisive. And in that process, leadership can create conflict and divisions. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. 
There's an old African proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. When the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? It's not just about leaders disagreeing because it trickles down and affects everyone if there's divisions and conflict over leaders. And that's exactly what Jesus knew would be so important for us. And a couple times today in this sermon, you're going to see another principle about opening up the New Testament, and that is there's certain themes that get repeated. And as you look at those, you, you want to watch for those themes, and today we're going to look at a couple of them that are very important. One of them is the unity that we have among us as Christians. If you turn over to John, Jesus prays for how the Christians can all be one. And this is so significant to me because of it's John 17. And if you don't put that in context, what it is is that's the Thursday night in the upper room, Jesus, just before Jesus is going to be arrested. So he is literally sitting with his disciples for the last time he's going to be able to talk to them. Because he's going to be taken away, he's going to be arrested, and he's going to die on the cross. And he knows this. And so I think it's pretty easy for us to be confident that he's saying, this is really important stuff because I only got one more night with you. And notice what he prays for in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. Through the message of those first 12 disciples, we now are believers. And his prayer is, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus, the Father, us all together in unity, all one. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that so that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In Jesus' final prayer, he lays out how important it is that the Christians be together, his followers. And that's part of why he shares his glory with us so we will fit in and be a part of this unity with Jesus and the Father and those who follow Jesus. In our terms today, the credibility of the church is tied to the unity of the church. Can I say that again? The credibility of the church is tied to the unity of the church. And that's why Jesus prays for our unity and why it's so important for us to be together. And based on what he says there in John 17, our ability to have God's power come and move here and work in us is tied partially to that unity, one body. Paul knew this to be true. Paul understood that principle. That's why this unity is so important 
That's why he begins 1 Corinthians when he starts talking about practical issues about this very thing. Turn over to 1 Corinthians, and you want to keep your finger there in chapter 1. We're going to look at it a couple times. He begins in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. The concept there is completely united, nothing between. That's one of Paul's guiding principles. This unity, this unity that was so important to Jesus, he prayed about it on his last night with the disciples. And we're going to see it again and again through 1 Corinthians. Paul will come back to this importance of us being united. I think it's a principle we need to hear again, not just as our congregation, but as Christians today in America. It's become so accepted that, oh, we disagree and we go to a different church, and we disagree and we quit coming to church, and it's just sort of, well, isn't that what Christians do? And in some ways, if you look at practical practice, you'd say, yeah, that's what it looks like Christians do. But that's the very opposite of what Christ and Paul says. It's so important. If we're going to have God's power, if we're going to have any credibility with the people out there watching us, it's so important that we be one. Now, Paul writes all that because the Corinthians were not united. He goes on then in the next verse to talk about very openly why they were divided. My brothers and sisters, verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. Another says, well, I follow Cephas. And another says, no, I follow Jesus. I follow Christ. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we know he was over in Ephesus. Across the sea, over in what we would call Turkey today. But some of Chloe's household had been over in Corinth. And when they got back, they said, Paul, you won't believe what's going on in this church you planted. Where you spent a year and a half, that church is now divided, Paul. And they're fighting with each other. And they've all lined up behind these famous preachers, because that's really who this is. We don't think that any one of those people listed was actually in the city of Corinth. They were famous preachers, who had risen up in the first church, in the early church, they probably all had a little bit different emphasis in their preaching. And the church was all choosing sides. Say, so I like what this guy says. I like somebody else. Well, we don't like any of them. We, we just listen to Jesus. And we hear these divisions growing. And Paul challenges them. Because he says, what you're focusing on is that leader, that human leader that you've chosen. Maybe that one leader whose message you like a little bit better than the other guy's message. But where your focus is, is all wrong. And that's what Paul calls out. And what he challenges them with. Because the cost of this is that our unity, your unity, is being destroyed. And church won't work where there's no unity. We talked about that last week. 
You walk into a church where there's disunity, conflict, you can feel it. You can just sense the tension. And the opposite is also true. You walk into that church where there's unity, and, and you can just sense that. People eager to see each other. And you hear a lot of laughter. And the worship, people just jump into together. Because that church does have that unity, and you can sense that. And the Corinthian church has lost that. And Paul needs to talk to them about that. But he does that by making a clear point that we as Christians have one leader. Let's go back and keep reading. Verse 13. Paul is not above a little sarcasm, and he gets sarcastic here. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the obvious answers to all those are no. Paul then says, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that they were baptized in my name. And then Paul's already written that, and he thinks, oh, yeah. Well, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. He's trying to cover the bases. But his point is, it's not about who you're baptized by. For Christ did not send me... uh, Sorry. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now we're going to dig into that last phrase, but I want us to catch Paul's point. We are Christians. The literal definition of Christian is Christ follower. That's who we are. Because as Paul points out, that's who can save us. It's not some human preacher. It's not some leader in the church that we really admire. And it's not bad to have people we look up to. But we must never confuse that with who we follow. We follow Jesus. And of course, the interesting thing about that is if you follow Jesus and I follow Jesus, that draws us into unity. Because we're following the same Lord. The same Savior. We are disciples of that same man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what Paul wants us to see and catch sight of and make these divisions and this focus on which human I like versus you like. Make that go away. But you see, that brings Paul to another issue. And before we do that, I need to talk for a second about another theme that we're going to see in Scripture. And that is what I call an upside-down pyramid. We want to go back to Matthew 20. And Jesus is doing some teaching to his followers. And he says there, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise over authority over them. And he's drawing out the picture saying, You know how it is in the world. You know how it is where you grew up. And where you live and work every day. And where you live and work every day, the team you're on, the company you work for, you name it, it looks like this. I call it an upward pyramid. And where do you want to get? You want to get to the top. Because that's who's in charge, that's who's the leader, that's where greatness comes from, is climbing the ladder and getting to the top. And Jesus says, I know that's where you come from. I know that's the culture you live in. I know that's how people around you do it. 
That may have been how you were raised. But Jesus says, I need to teach you a different way to do it. So go back to Matthew 20. This is what he says, not so with you. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be totally different. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus says, we're going to flip the pyramid over. In my kingdom, greatness is at the bottom. Who can serve the most? Who's willing to give up themselves the most? That's where greatness will come. That's what you need to focus on. And of course, Jesus will show that on the cross. The greatest act of servanthood where he descends to the very point of the pyramid that is upside down. And he's teaching his disciples, saying, if you're going to follow me in my new kingdom, this is how things are going to work. And I don't want to diminish that warning, because the challenge for us as Christians is we get that, we hear that, we read that scripture, but then we go out those doors and we go back into a world that's all built around still that pyramid like this. And without thinking, just subconsciously, unconsciously, we get drugged back into, yeah, it's about climbing. Yeah, it's about power. Yeah, it's about me and getting to the top. Because we hear those messages constantly. That's why we need to constantly come back here and take communion at a table about greatness is unwillingness to die. Greatness is willing to serve and wash feet and turn the other cheek and give up and, and be a slave to others. Jesus said, that's how it works with me. Now, Paul understands that concept. He's been taught that concept. But he understands that the Corinthians aren't getting that. That argument that's going on among the leaders and who's greatest, that's pyramid like this. My leader's greater than your leader. And we still do that as Christians, don't we? Certain entertainers or preachers on television obviously Andy Stanley is better than and we have our whole list and some of you out there are like Andy Stanley are you kidding me we still do it today we still struggle with that and Paul challenges us because what he's learned from Jesus is that weakness can actually be powerful and that's what he talks about next Remember that phrase that he ended with, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now when Paul says that, that brings up a, com- a concept he's going to talk about. But think about that concept. The cross is powerful. Well, the cross was about losing. The cross was about dying. How can the cross be powerful? That's what Paul goes on to talk about. Start in verse 18. For the message of the cross, our leader died, our leader lost, that's our message. The Romans killed him. The Jews got rid of him. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? 
Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's going to get to a challenge here. We have our human wisdom of who's best, what's best. We've got it figured out. And God says, I'm going to surprise you all. I'm going to do the impossible. I'm going to turn things upside down. And you won't think it can be done, but I'm going to show you it can be done. Our human intelligence hasn't fixed the world. We're getting wiser all the time, no doubt about it. The amount of information we have is just exponentially growing. And yet I think most of us would say our world is more messed up than it has been. So why isn't all of this knowledge helping us? Why aren't we solving the world's problems? Why aren't we fixing human relationships? Things are getting worse. And Paul, 2,000 years ago, said, yeah, people are going to rely on human wisdom and human power, and it's not going to work for them. It's not going to get them anywhere. Go down and pick up in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Can you stop there for just a second, and then we'll read verse 24 in a minute. Paul was speaking, remember we talked a week or two ago that the Corinthian church was very diverse. There would be converted Jews there. There would be converted pagans, Greeks. But they came from very different directions. The Jews were always looking for a sign. We know the Messiah is coming, and we will know the Messiah is here when he does all these big miracles. And if you want us to believe in Jesus, we want to see these big miracles. The Greeks, they were philosophers. They created all of our great, or a lot, of our great thinking. So they wanted to sit down and give me arguments. Show me this logic. Give me these points. Explain your philosophy. And if your philosophy sounds smarter, then we'll believe in your philosophy. And Paul says, you know what? God's going to shock everybody because he's not giving signs. Jesus didn't give a ton of signs. In fact, the cross is the opposite. The cross would cause the Jews to say, well, that settles it. He's clearly not the Messiah. He just died. If he was the Messiah, he would have defeated the Romans, walked off the cross. Nobody could have heard him. Then we would have believed in him. That Jesus, he died on the cross. Forget him. And the same for the Greeks. This is your logic. This is your great philosophy you're laying out for us. Come lose? We don't want to believe in that. The message of the cross, Paul said, to those kind of people, it's just foolishness. That's crazy. Who would want to believe in him? But then in verse 24, But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, that's who we're preaching. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What we're preaching is God's wisdom, which is, as Paul says, God's dumbest idea, 
God's dumbest idea is wiser than our greatest genius's insight. And God's weakest moment, the tip of his little offhand finger, the weakest digit you ever want, whatever you want to imagine, is stronger than the strongest person who's ever lived. That's who God is. And God wants to teach humans a lesson through Christ and the cross. The cross is a symbol of weakness. But we know, those who believe, we know the cross, that wasn't losing, it was winning. That wasn't weakness, that opened the door to the greatest power Christ has. What we sing about, I thought about that this week, we really don't, other than one time a year, we don't sing most of our songs about Easter morning. We don't put on a necklace an empty tomb. We wear the cross. We have the cross over this room, not an empty cave. Because the power of Christ was in the cross. And as Christians, we get that. And the unbeliever sits there and says, you're, you're following a loser. He died on the cross. And we say, yeah, he did. And we are so glad he did. Because he wasn't losing, he was winning. This wasn't God getting caught in a stupid idea. This was God's genius idea. And he just played checkmate on Satan. And Satan is sitting there speechless because he just lost the game a second after he thought he'd won the game. And Paul said, that's why we don't want to look anywhere else but to the cross, and we don't want to take away the power of the cross, and why we are happy to preach Christ crucified. Because that is the ultimate power of God showing. It's not human power. It's not human genius plans. It's the shocking, surprising, unexpected power of God. That's what we need to focus on. Not human leaders, not human ideas. That's never what the church needs to be about. It's about Christ, this amazing man who was willing to die on the cross to win the greatest victory in history. Now, <clears throat> Paul goes on to say, you know what? We're examples of that. We are examples of that as well. Not just Christ on the cross. Go back with me and read, starting with verse 26. <clears throat> Paul turns to them and says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. When you became Christians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. You were ordinary people. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, are so that no one may boast before him. Think of what Paul is saying there. What he's saying to us is that we're examples of the same principle. We're ordinary people. We're not especially talented. We're not especially beautiful. We're not especially famous. We're none of those things. And yet it's us ordinary people 
that God wants to use and show His power through us ordinary people. We need to hear that. Because as, as I talk to people, hey, why, why don't you do this? Hey, why don't you try that? Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, you get somebody else who's better at it. We're focusing on our weaknesses. But you know what Paul says? Well, of course, that's good. Because God delights in taking people who aren't the best and using His power to accomplish amazing things through them. Because what happens then? People aren't focused on me or you. They're saying, look what God did through, and the focus is placed on God. And His power and how amazing God is. He uses these ordinary people and working together. Look what they accomplished. It's the same principle as the cross and the power of God shown through the defeat on a cross. God delights in ordinary people when, God, when they say, God, I'll let you use me. I'm nervous. I'm not sure I'm the best one for this. But if this is what you want me to do, okay, but you're going to have to help a lot. And he says, that's exactly the way I want it. In fact, if we would say, God, you're lucky you got me. And I got this all figured out and I'm going to do this. God would say, I can't use you. Please hear that. He would say, I got to find somebody else. You're overqualified and you'll rely on your human strength. And then nobody... Then, People will be praising you, not me. I like that average person who walks into it and says, God, you got to help me here. And he says, I will. That's what I delight in doing. I can take a cross and turn it into the most powerful thing in history. I delight in helping people who are weak. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. He gives one more example, and that's himself. If you go back to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, he says there, um, and so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. I wasn't a great Greek orator. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And in a sense, Paul is holding himself up as the way leaders need to function as compared to the leaders that were causing division in the church. It's not about the humans. You need to look for a leader who comes in humility and says, it's not about me. If I lead you, it's because of God's power flowing through me. It's not about my great gifts and abilities. It's about what God can do through me. Paul says, I'm right in there with the rest of you. I'm average. I'm, I'm weak. I don't have all these great skills. I'm just trying to let God use me. Happy to do that because then you're going to focus on God and his power and not me. And Paul, basically his point is, if you'll focus there, this leadership division that's tearing your church apart, 
it'll go away. Because it's not about the human leaders. It's about Jesus. And it's about his power on the cross. And the more we get that and apply that to our own lives, it's not about me in a world. I just am amazed at our culture right now that is still addicted to the concept, if I focus more on me, things will get better. It's not going to work. We have to look beyond me, and we have to look to Christ and God's power. And the Spirit's working and serving the very concepts Jesus taught and lived out 2,000 years ago. And it will draw us together, and it will unleash God's power in us when we look to Christ, a servant dying on a cross for us, and we follow him. Let's pray. Father, this is challenging stuff. But help us understand what Paul was saying. Help us look at Jesus and realize why he was so powerful. Thank you for leaders that you give us who are servants who want to be like Jesus and put the focus on God. Help us see that. Help us be like them. Thank you for this word for us. May it call us to true greatness at the bottom of that pyramid as we let go of me and we focus on you. In your son's name, amen.